Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. He said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who has organised a surprise 50th wedding anniversary for his parents in the last week. So I'm feeling pretty smug. Today we are joined by the journalist of a thousand quips, Mick Wright, in Norwich in England, and by that sensible man of the left who likes a good wine, Doug Levy, in San Francisco, California. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, gentlemen. We're all in that gag now. In a week that has seen another warning bell for the Republicans in the shape of the closeness of the special election results in Ohio, we ask who will ever drain Washington's swamp? So here's what we as a group are announcing today. First, I'm going to reinstitute a five-year ban on all executive branch officials lobbying the government for five years after they leave government service. All right, uh, that was Donald Trump's way of uh, going after Hillary Clinton to say you can't leverage off your time in office for quick profits or quick speeches or uh, referring to her husband as well. Uh, profiting off of that time in the White House. Uh, Whether that goes anywhere, of course, anyone's guess, because this will extend to members of Congress. Congressman Chris Collins, Republican in New York, one of the earliest Trump backers. Congressman, uh, do you think that will resonate? Do you think that will be something he should pound? Yeah, I mean, it's good to be with you, and there's no question uh, Donald Trump's one of the few people as a uh, private sector guy just now entering politics who can bring up ethics reform. And the contrast to Hillary, which I think uh, most people recognize her as the most unethical, her and Bill, uh, former politicians, current politicians that have ever taken advantage of their office, you know, leaving the White House, quote, dead broke and now being worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The public is, you know, disgusted with politics. And part of it is this money in the revolving door of elected officials, you know, uh, having a career path that says I'll serve for X number of years so I can then go back into the private sector, leverage off of that, make millions of dollars as a lobbyist. Now, that leaves a bad taste in the public's mind, and I think Donald Trump is one of the few who can legitimately bring this up. Clearly, as president, when he leaves, he's not going to be looking to be lobbying Congress. As the tax fraud trial of lobbyist and ostrich jacket wearing Port Manafort continues, how may its result affect Washington's lobbying industrial complex? Over to you in California, Doug. It's fun to watch. It's certainly great for those of us that are just kind of uh, happy spectators of the legal process. But it is also uh, shining a light on the industry of lobbying. And I think a lot of Americans have been blissfully ignorant of how much money goes into the lobbying firms, where it's coming from, and how many of the people on K Street 
are collecting money from both Democrats and Republicans, and as we're especially learning in the Manafort trial, they're also collecting money from strongmen and other ugly people whose interests are probably not consistent with what we think of here in the United States. Mick, there's an an estimated 15,000 lobbyists in Washington. You've got 15,000 people pressurizing the federal government uh, on behalf of special interests. Can anyone ever drain the swamp? Um, no. <laughs> um, I think that there's always been special interests in politics since there's been organized political parties because politicians always need someone to bankroll them. It's a little less of a problem in the UK, although it still is a problem because our laws are a lot stricter. And since, I guess since 2010, it's really exploded, even more so in the US. You look back to Citizens United, um, where, you know, the so-called money is speech judgment, getting rid of those limits um, on uh, independent expenditures by non-profits and corporations and labor unions and others has really made it a lot worse um, and massive boomtown for the lobbyists plus revolving doors you you're in high high office and then you just move into a lobbying position something else that in the uk they've tried to deal with technically you're meant to get permission for jobs for a, a few years after um, but even that's not really cutting it we actually have had rules that have tried to limit that revolving door aspect. The Obama administration actually had some pretty strict rules, uh, President Bush before him, where you know if you lobbied a federal agency and then went inside the government to work for that agency, you couldn't be involved in things you were lobbying on. And also for, I believe, two years after leaving. Um, that's not the case under the current administration. They actually dropped those rules. Doug, let me just understand, though, under Obama, how were those rules enforced? You can have the rule, but who was monitoring it and what would the sanction if you broke it? Great question. So obviously rules are only as good as the enforcement. And um, I can tell you with reasonable certainty that in, in the years that I've been following things in Washington, so really going back to the Carter administration, for the most part, you had people selected for government positions who considered it an honor and a privilege. So the number of people who came in with intention of breaking the rules was really small. And many of those people got caught, and some of them went to jail, as they should. The ethics office at the White House has always been considered advisory group. They don't have enforcement power per se, but it's very rare for a president to overrule what the ethics advisors say until the current administration, which literally none of the senior staff had ethics briefings. They took months to complete their, their preliminary ethics review paperwork. And even when the Office of Ethics made comments and suggested certain people be restricted in terms of what they could do, the White House issued waivers. So it's like all bets are off. And that's how we have people like the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Ben Carson, who even after being told that it was possibly illegal and unquestionably unethical, for him to have family members as federal contractors working on projects with him. He went ahead and did it anyway, in full knowledge. And we've never had that before. But if it's rotten at the top, if you've got if you've got a president who's employing his son-in-law as a senior counselor to the president and giving his daughter uh, a, a role in the administration, then it just it's very hard to be surprised that it happens in other departments. That's absolutely true. And just to be clear, there's nothing inherently wrong in nepotism. It is frowned upon, and uh, it's not the way things are supposed to be. What is wrong is favoring individuals in your family or connected to by your business um, over other potentially more qualified people. And bypassing the federal contracting rules to give money to people who are lesser qualified is a real problem. That certainly is not good stewardship of taxpayer money. I mean, the nepotism is not unknown, is it either? I mean, if you look back to 
to Bobby Kennedy and say, okay, well, Bobby Kennedy was a was a, an impressive politician, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still somewhat dodgy that JFK made him Attorney General. That well, is- and that's actually why we have statutes that restrict when you can exactly. do that. Exactly. Uh, but they don't seem to work, do they? <laughs> That's the thing. Because it, but we it again brings us back to something that we've discussed in previous shows, which is, which is, it becomes more and more apparent that the American political system is very dependent on concepts of norms. And if you have people in the executive branch of government who decide to not abide by those norms, that's a problem. Because if things are established as norms. They can be ignored and will be ignored. I think that's true. And in fact... No, just saying that, I I think you you really are onto something there, Mick. And it shows you how flimsy or how cosy, maybe the cosy is the wrong word to use, but actually how paper thin the norms have been for the the 200 plus years of the Republic that this president has just come in and just said to hell with them and hasn't had the appropriate pushback from his party. The other thing I would say though is I, I think I think if you dig into any any administration of the of the of the modern era of American politics, there's no administration that doesn't have some dodginess going on. It just happens to be that this one is so blatant and blase about it. I mean anytime you dig into anything at the DOD there's always dodgy things going on in defence procurement. The same in the UK. Uh, defence procurement, almost by its very nature, is, is riven with corruption. It, you know, we say the Obama administration didn't have any scandals, or that's something people tend to say. Well, it sort of did in some ways, and there are there are certainly low level stuff, but not at cabinet level, and that's where we're looking at it, like extremely just don't care level. Mm. Well, I think that's that's the part that is really important because there's plenty of the President Reagan, President Carter, and the first President Bush, the second President Bush, and Bill Clinton. There's plenty of things that those presidents did that I disagree with. And there certainly are people in those administrations who did things that they shouldn't have done. The difference is that when given an opportunity to weigh in on what is proper behavior, President Bush, President Obama, those two in particular never opted for the less ethical path you know i I think that's absolutely true and yeah you're completely right to point out the fact that this administration are absolutely not keen on confronting any kind of ethics violations scott pruitt had to go through numerous before he left uh, the epa you know, trying to get his wife a Chipotle franchise. Uh, Chick- Chick-fil-A. 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 It was yeah. not Chipotle. Yeah. Sorry. Like <laughs> you know, that, that would have sunk anybody first off, but this was what is 10th infraction. But the clarion call for draining the swamp was actually one of Trump's most powerful calls to action during his campaign. Why? <laughs> are his base just so silent on it now? Is it just because their man's in power, it just doesn't matter? Uh, discuss, Mick. Yeah, I think because they want to believe that. It's like, you know, he took loads of money from Goldman Sachs. He took loads of money from corporate donors later on in the campaign. What Trump was quite clever at, yeah, clever at doing was implying that he would fund his campaign from his own personal wealth. But once he got the nomination, he took his many... Uh, donations as any candidate tends to do and then filled his administration with people who come who who have been feeding on the swamp for many years and to be honest with you um even though by the end of the campaign he wasn't working with roger stone a, a person who would engage roger stone or paul manafort or any of these people stone manafort these people are the very physical embodiment of the swamp and why do his people not care his people don't care because his people that their man's in there and they believe him when he says he's doing the things he says he's doing. A lot of this stuff uh, you only become aware of if you if you constantly read certain areas of the press. And if you're part of the press, i.e. Fox News or or even more so Infowars, is feeding you your news, then you're not aware of these scandals. You're aware of continuing scandals with the globalist elite or whatever, most of which are sort of confected. Doug, 
what should we be most worried about? The fact that foreign governments, whether it's uh, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, etc., have their own various lobbying groups to pressure the US government, or the fact that really this shifts the nation's kind of political structure towards an oligarchy. The average citizen has little and no influence. This is all about vested big money interests. What's more important? What's more corrosive well, I think, to the Republic? I, I think if we could turn the clock back to the 1990s when a Republican retired member of Congress decided to begin a campaign to get Republicans into leadership positions of lobbying firms. I mean, there was a really concerted effort on one side of the aisle to become the lobbying power. I mean, that's kind of led to the perversion of thought in Washington. But I think the bigger, longer term concern is that we have a population that is incapable of evaluating information in a proper and objective way. And fundamentally, we don't have enough people who even understand how our government is supposed to work, let alone how it actually works. So when you have a poll that shows 43% of Republican voters think the president should have the power to shut down the media, I mean, the fundamental misunderstanding of what our government is all about, (laughs) it it gives me reason to be very concerned for the long term. I don't know how we ever get back to a point where the public is informed about issues and reaches its own conclusion and then votes according to their own best interests and not what somebody tells them. But surely then that is just the power of of the media and that's just another reason why this uh, administration is, is bashing over the head all the time. If you have a powerful independent media, then you give uh, the average man, woman, citizen the tools to be able to evaluate uh, what they need, what the country needs, and what the politi- politicians should be doing. But you don't. But have the power. president has successfully diminished the power so of media. If you have, yeah. So Mick, as you were saying, it's the economics though of the media is the problem, right? The the economics of the media are not in. It, it doesn't serve to do the in depth kind of work. You know, even apparent bastions of of sensible thought, like. The Washington Post or the or, or the New York Times. To be honest, they should hang their heads in shame when it comes to handling this this president. Particularly the New York Times. When you look at the New York Times op-ed section and even in some of the news pages now, it is too bothered with how Trump voters feel than it is with addressing the fact that the president is the liar in chief. Look at the way it uses decorous language to characterize his lies it is very careful and 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 oft you know it is very very shy of saying lies the the president's mischaracterizations etc etc it's like no he's a liar and he is lying and these are the things he's lied about and you will always have a problem with the media when it is as polarized as it is because if fox news is you know just running the lies and the propaganda and the New York Times and other so-called legitimate sources don't have the guts to really tell the stories in the most pressing and hard way necessary. You're not going to have a media that can that can change the the narrative or you know present a more clear narrative about what's actually going on. Mm. Also, it doesn't pay <laughs> to spend that time. Doesn't pay. You can't do. It's very difficult to report the. There's about twelve Watergate scandals a week under this lot, and there's enough people to report on them. Just to end up on lobbyists, Doug, I want you to give us a real sense of the power of one uh, organisation, the National Rifle Association. And basically, they're, they're kind of stranglehold on US gun uh, gun rights because I think any kind of poll will tell you that I think about 85% of all Americans, 85% and upwards, believe in stronger rules around the ownership of guns. But here is... Uh, an organization who have successfully lobbied for some 20 odd years for there to be no uh, meaningful gun rights laws in the state. So here you have 85% of Americans believing there should be tighter rules, gun checks, etc. 
but the NRA can scotch that because they're great lobbying work. And you have to say it's great lobbying work because they're, they're um, anti-democratic in, in effect. The issue with the NRA is a complicated one, but it is a pretty dramatic reflection of that growth in corporate and organized lobbying where you've got a larger amount of money flowing into a smaller number of issues. And it's also led to an escalation of the cost of running for office. And, and really, that's, that's where the problems all arise. It now costs so much money to run for Congress, to run for the Senate, to run for re-election, that these people, as soon as they get into office, have to start thinking about running for re-election. And that perverts their, their choices. And because the NRA has become this enormous source of funding for election campaigns, they have had disproportionate power. And now that we've learned that some of the money in the most recent election cycle came from Russia, it's kind of all making sense in a very sad, perverted way. You know what? At the end of every section, I always come out with some quip that says, and on that bit of good news, let, let, let's move on to something else. But um, I think that's a very powerful and damning indictment on the whole American electoral system, that because as you rightly say, Doug, it's so expensive to run, that the NRA has congressmen, nascent senators in their pocket whilst they're running and says, I will provide you with $1 million, $2 million, $3 million if you just sign up and say that the, the, the Second Amendment needs to be upheld and any small uh, move against tightening rules around guns means that um, you lose potential funding for your next election in two years time you know you have politicians by the short and curlies and it's always shocked me looking at american politics how much time american politicians spend fundraising you know and if you can go to one organization and get 50 percent, 60 percent, 70 percent of your running costs you're going to kowtow to them and not actually to your constituents it's exactly what's happening All right and now on that note we will move on to one sloppy dressed gentleman from your side of the woods there, Doug, and another sloppy windbag from ours, Steve Bannon and Boris Johnson. The Tory chairman, Brandon Lewis, called on Mr Johnson to say sorry for claiming veiled Muslim women look like letterboxes. The Prime Minister agreed. It's not language I would have used. I, don't, I think it was wrong to have used that language, and I agree with Brandon Lewis. With no apology forthcoming, it seems there's something of a standoff. The backlash that Boris Johnson's comments has created has been aimed at him personally, but it poses a problem for the Conservative Party too, a party already facing accusations of failing to do enough to tackle Islamophobia. The founder of the Conservative Muslim Forum told Newsnight he'd written to the party chairman this afternoon demanding further action, suggesting Boris Johnson should be kicked out of the Tories. The party must take action. I don't think apology is enough. I think we should take more severe action against this man, really. Well, take the whip from him. Why not? He's not a superhuman being. He's a member of the party. If I behave badly, I'm a member of the Conservative Party, I'm a Conservative peer, the party chairman, the party, uh, 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 the prime minister has a right to take the pick. Let's take the, uh, the, 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 the whip from him. It's not out of order, and that is, I think, what I would like to see. Mick, just why did Boris Johnson hold talks with Donald Trump's former strategist, Steve Bannon, in the aftermath of his exit over Brexit. Because Boris is a chivying opportunist with the dress sense of a, a drunken lord, and um, so is Steve Bannon. I, it, it's, it's all pure opportunism, essentially. I, I think Bannon is, is, is trying to present himself now as, as creating this pan-European um, network of nationalists uh, and... Boris will take any opportunity that he thinks can uh, give him some advantage in uh, his quest to become Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And I think that's basically long and short of it. 
And I really do think one of the most concerning things for me is the notion in a lot of press outlets that Bannon is some kind of Machiavellian Bond movie villain genius. I think it overplays the power Bannon has while underplaying uh, the dangers of the growth in the far right. So they, they're getting it wrong from, from two sides of the same uh, question, really. Mm. Mick, I'm going to stay with you now. Boris is a posh boy populist. No one really believes that, he's, that he really believes in Brexit. Is he just by far the most opportunist of British politicians of our age? Yes, I, I think that's true. And I, but I think the other thing that's worth remembering about Boris is, and it's a name that Boris doesn't like to get mentioned in interviews, but it's a guy called Darius Guppy who Boris uh, went to school with. And Darius Guppy went to prison for a million, a multi-million pound fraud. Boris at one point was on the phone, on a, recorded on a phone call to his old friend from Eton and Oxford allowing Darius Guppy to suggest to him, oh, maybe you might give me um, the address of this journalist who's bothered me so I can have them beaten up. And if you listen to the the, the, the content of that phone call, you get a sense of the nasty opportunist side of, of, of Boris Johnson. And the same thing that comes when you read, you know, newspaper articles in the past 10 years where he said things like, you know, natives with their watermelon smiles and called people in Papua New Guinea pickaninnies. This is a man who was he was prone to racist language. So his latest outburst about the dress of Muslim women and just comparing them to robbers and letterboxes, it, it's, it's of a fashion that there's a continuing trend with this. I think the fake Boris was the kind of liberal-minded liberal populist of the London mayoral years. I think he did that in order to make himself palatable to the London suburbs who got him elected. It's worth remembering that the centre of London didn't get him elected, that his, his, his base as London mayor was the outskirts. But I don't think that's the real thing. I think the real him is a, is a, is a pretty, pretty much more right wing than people like to admit. Um, nasty bit of work. <laughs> We're going to come back on to Boris um, in a little bit. But, Doug, uh, your Mr. Bannon is reportedly setting up an office in Brussels to bring Trump's brand of right-wing hateful hogwash to Europe. Are you glad to see the back of him over there? Oh, I would like to see no part of him, quite frankly, uh, because I think he is precisely the opposite of what he tries to get people to think he is. He, he portrays himself as the hero of true freedom and the person who can bring an end to the political, what he calls the political class running governments. But in fact, he is precisely what most people fear the most. Uh, he is not advocating true freedom and democracy. He's, he's trying to get uh, the wealthy to have control, uh, an oligarchy, as you've said. And that's a dangerous thing. But it's not surprising that he's finding a receptive audience, because look at what's happened in places like Hungary and even Italy. There are people who are looking for very simple solutions to big problems. And Bannon can talk simple solutions that sound sophisticated, but they really don't have a lot of depth when you look at the details. He, he would say completely the opposite, though, was he? And he does, for him, the, the world does break down into culture, uh, dominant cultures, and, de and, and defending those cultures. And there, and there is a tradition of this bullshit as well, isn't there? There is a tradition of people who not only talk about the supremacy of white Western culture, Judean Christian culture, but then do talk about um, ethno-nationalism and ethno-nationalistic economic credos as well. So dare I say, this man has thought about it. He's come to the wrong conclusions, but he has. He is, he is a deep thinker. <laughs> I, I, I like that yelp there, Mick. Mick, this week, and you, you did kind of say this in your answer to your previous question, that uh, Johnson has attacked Muslim women for looking like letterboxes and bank robbers. Is this just a blatant signpost shift to a more right-wing 
populist rhetoric or can we just call it a blunder? No, it's not a blunder because he's written it in a in a telegraph column for which he is handsomely remunerated. He didn't accidentally splutter it out while pissed up on poor. He <laughs> he did that. He he made he chose his words. Uh-huh. And in choosing his words, you know, he made a, a, a very deliberate statement. It's also worth noting, you know, language is so important and 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 what he 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 talks about the burqa, right? And he's talking about how we shouldn't ban the burqa, but how it's it's awful. You know, it's an awful thing. Nobody in the UK ever sees anyone really wearing a burqa, save perhaps for Saudi Arabian women who are over with their husbands in London. Muslim well, women in the UK niqabs. don't wear burqas. Yeah, yeah. They, they wear niqabs, some of them, but, but they don't wear burqas. It's a manifest difference, isn't it? Because if you put around in your rhetoric that there are all these women in the UK who wear these um, outfits where their faces are, you know, where even their eyes are covered, then that sort of pushes people Mm. to the next level of thing. You know, the conflation of terms is a problem. Um, It's really just another example where politicians are trying to get ahead by painting themselves as like their voters and painting everybody else as somehow different. And uh, I actually saw a campaign sign recently uh, in Orange County, uh, California, where somebody actually was running with the slogan, he's one of us. Wow. <laughs> and uh, luckily that person didn't win, but there's an appeal there. And I think that's what we're seeing in, in Europe right now, too. So the anti-Muslim populism is a blatant ploy, isn't it? But the, but where he's, I'm gonna, I can't say one step ahead because that's completely utterly wrong because this, this is not three-dimensional chess, but it's for him to paint himself out to be a free speech martyr, isn't it? Everybody then criticises what he says and he says, oh, I'm only saying uh, what everybody else is thinking. I am a martyr to free speech. That's what this is all about, isn't it, Mick? Well, I think I think also it's interesting. You've got... He, 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 he triangulated his position in this quite carefully, really, because what he was saying is banning the burqa isn't a liberal thing and he's against that, but also then I'm going to make what he would characterise as humorous or, you know, f- humorous comments uh, acceptable under free speech about the things that some Muslim women choose to wear. What he's trying to do is he's trying to... M- He's trying to appeal to a appeal to that populist vote, and I hate this this populist term. Right, I really have got to a point where I really despise this notion where we keep saying populist when what we really mean is racists. You know, like let's not say pop. Like I don't like that we keep saying populism when what we mean is racism. You know, I think that it. Is, well, no, no, hold on, because I know you're going to fly back, but there, but it is an issue because because actually. Saying that anti-immigration and anti-Islam and anti, um, you know, anti-multiculturalism uh, is populism, right? It is ceding territory to the far right. It is ceding territory to them because in that language is the implication that they are the popular opinions, right? That that is the center ground. So the Overton window just rushes to the right if we allow that that is what pop what the popular view is and actually the issue with immigration is mostly lack of education because when you look at the actual facts figures all the details around this stuff it's it's very very different to the picture presented by the so-called populists like bannon nigel farage and tommy robinson who are all on the same spectrum of disgusting racist shit whilst i agree with you on right-wing populism there is populism of the left. So just to say that the word populist means racist, I think that that's wrong. Uh, left-wing populism would be... No, no, I didn't say that. Though, well, you right, said did the I? word I said populist that... means racist. I said that, yeah, and actually left-wing populism is, as as it goes, they kind of tie up at the end <laughs> because it's, because at both ends of this what is, this so-called populism is is an attempt to find groups who are uh, to other a certain group in order to justify your policies. Well, I don't know if I'd quite agree with that, because for me, left-wing populism is, in America, it would be free health care. Over here, it would be yeah, nationalised the trains. Jeremy Corbyn, I would say, is a left-wing populist. He has very simple-sounding solutions 
two problems. We need to put more money into education. We need to put, we need to renationalize various state industries, of which I'm kind of up for. But there's a name for that that's not populism, Royfield. There's a good name that we've had for that's a very old name for that. It's called socialism. Mick, uh, I, I'm acute. I'm acutely aware. He's not a populist. I, he's a socialist. I, I'm, I'm acutely aware. However, we are living in a t- we're living in an age where there are very easy labels to throw around. But anyway, we're slightly splitting hairs. I'm with you in terms of right wing populism is racism. I'm just saying that there is on the left a populism which is somewhat knee-jerk solutions, which you on left, on the right, and of which feels like very simple solutions to problems. But anyway, let's just end on this uh, phenomena that is Boris Johnson. Mick, when is he going to get his denouement? How are we going to get rid of this oath? How are we going to get rid of this uh, huckster from British politics? Um, we're not, and he's going to become prime minister. You're, you're having a laugh. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Well, I, okay, let, let's he's, look at Johnson. He's, he's, he has an appeal to white working class voters who are no, no, traditionally Labour. They don't matter at the moment. They matter to me, but they don't matter at the moment, right? Mm. That's irrelevant. His path to becoming prime minister is simple and direct. His opinion poll ratings amongst the conservative membership are on the rise. Theresa mm. May is a weak prime minister. She will resign. There won't be an election. Boris Johnson will become Prime Minister. Isn't he too much of a divisive figure within the Tory MPs, though? Hasn't he, you know, pissed off too many people? That w- What we're going to end up with is, is Javid as the next Prime Minister. No, don't think so. The thing about Javid is he's... I, I tell you why I think Boris will become the next Prime... will become the next Tory leader is because they will... What he will say and what his outriders will say within the party to 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 get him in there will they will say listen we went with Theresa may she was a remainer she is bland and she didn't have the personality or the power to push through the things we want he has got the hard right of the tory party on his side now and others who just want to stay in power and are opportunists like him will fall in line um I really do. I think he will. I think he will. I think he will. And the, the only way we'll get rid of him is when he makes a terrible, terrible job as prime minister and is voted out. Mm. The next well, two prime ministers, I, I'm, I'd be willing to bet money on, will it will be Boris Johnson and then uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Right. So soothsayer, Nostradamus, Mick Wright, let's hold you to that. But now let's go on to our takeaways of the last seven days. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Phil Brown and with me I have... David Crowther of The History of England. It was the best of time. It was the worst of time. She was the people's princess. To fight on the beaches. Away, oh, man. These are the things that made England. To fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body but of a weak and feeble woman. 
These are the things that made England. And the King of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. It gives wind in Churchill's sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, (laughs) even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But there's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do Scar. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism and, well, hideous racist and far-right views. And it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England as she is. The country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that's David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. Takeaways of the week. It's a time when we put politics to one side and we get philosophical and we stare at a blue sky and we ponder the meaning of life, existence or just cuddly nice things. So uh, you're in a place, you're in a bit of the world there, Doug, which the sky is forever blue. You're in sunny California. So it's over to you first, sir. Well, the skies are actually kind of hazy and brown right now because of all the wildfires. So that's that's a bit of a depressing part. But uh, my, uh, my thought for the week is, uh, where have I been all these years? I had no idea that there is an active competition among people to ride all the rides at Disney World in a single day. And I've missed out on this <laughs> is it that you, you feel that you have oh absolutely i mean i grew up in southern california where well, you just Disneyland- feel that you've missed out on on reporting of the phenomena that people actually want to do this i think there's because neither register much I, I, I think there's some of both it's like the challenge of uh what is it it's 49 or 50 rides in in a single day i mean wow navigating the lines i mean that's that's a marathon i mean i've done the 26.2 thing a bunch of times and that's that's one thing but but anybody can do that i don't think there are very many people that can do all the rides at disney world in a day that's a feat i've never been one for fun fairs and theme parks like not at all um but i took my kids ella must have been three at the time took her to legoland and windsor um, just outside of London, and she was too small to go on anything. And Noah would have been about five and a half, and he could go on just about anything. It was it was a matter of inches, and Ella was just because they have that you know height restriction. You've got to be a certain height to get on things. And I'll never forget how she took it on the chin every time we went up to a ride, and they says. Uh, you're too small to get to get on this so I had to stay with her and she just looked at her brother get on that ride and she took it so stoically at the age of three and the one ride she could go on her face lit up like a Christmas tree I'll never forget that to the day I die and she and she said no look 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 I can go on this one and as a parent who is kind of anti the kind of corporatization of uh, kids entertainment even I was forced to admit that, you know what, it absolutely made her day. She could go on one ride and we'd been there for like five hours. So, yeah, um, it, those things can bring joy to, to people. But generally, though, Mick, uh, generally, though, Doug, I, I'm not one of them. Um, so I'm going to move on from Disneyland, Disney World and people going on many rides and ask you, uh, Mr. Mick Wright, to uh, tell me about something which I can kind of get behind. Um. Well, is it positive? It sort of starts negative and gets positive. It's the Mick Wright way. Um, so, <laughs> so Gordon Ramsay's latest show has been announced, and and it's it's the it's the absolute apotheosis of what Anthony Bourdain used to do. So what Ramsay's going to do is he's going to turn up to places um, around the world. Uh, see how they cook their local cuisine and then compete against them to prove that his version is better which is I think is like one of the dumbest most awful um, ideas for a show but the upside is 
um, all of the series of No Reservation, the um, No Reservations, the brilliant anti Bourdain show, are now back on Netflix. And as desperately sad as it is that he's not around anymore, it's an incredible body of work and a really good thing to watch if you want to feel uh, more positive about the ability of people to experience other cultures uh, with joy and an open heart and the uh, ability to to respect those cultures and um, celebrate them without sort of imposing your own will upon them. Um, and I think Gordon Ramsay should go, watch go, them. What were you going to say? I, 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 I think you're absolutely right. Gordon Ramsay should be learning from what Anthony Bourdain did because uh, the programs that Bourdain did showed not only the cultures of the food, but he managed to help inform people about the social and political constructs that impacted the way people live in other places. And uh, as you said, it's it's just absolute joy. And it's not one is better than the other the way Ramsey likes to think. Yeah, totally. Um, I've got a, a rather weak one this week. Well, uh, oh. generally, mine aren't as good as whatever you pair bring to the table anyway. Oh, uh, they're, 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 they're not, they're not. But I was just really struck. I've just had a wonderful meal at a restaurant just up the road called Simpsons in Birmingham. And to go there is a, is a total treat. Um, it, it's an expensive place to go and eat. So you can only go and eat there on a very special occasion or like, like once a year or whatever. You've got to save your pennies. But I was really struck by my dessert, which was a rice pudding and ice cream uh, con- uh, concoction. How important texture is when we're eating food. It's something which we instinctively know, but we generally don't really uh, kind of vocalize it. So you had uh, the rice pudding, which was kind of warm, and then the ice cream, which was cold. So there's this kind of heat textural contrast. And then the genius thing, which the chef did, was to have uh, bits of rice which had been cooked and then slightly burnt, thrown on the top so they were hard, so it crunched. This was just, I just kind of looked at this thing. It looked beautiful, but the textural sensation was just absolutely amazing. And it just got me thinking about uh, foods where the texture of of it is just a contrast so having a little bit of pork belly where you have the skin which is which is crunchy and crispy and then the 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 little uh, layer of fat which is this sponge and then the meat and every dish which i was served had these contrasting waves of, of kind of like texture and it, and it was just absolutely amazing. So there was the taste, there was the look, but actually the textural contrast was that absolutely amazing. And I just walked away saying, "That was a bloody good meal." And 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 that's and that's all I got this week is that you know what, go and enjoy a good meal if you can, and and look out and try and look out for the things which maybe most of the times we don't really think of. Uh, Doug. Over in California, uh, tell us what you've been up to recently and how people can find you on the socials. I've mostly been trying to stay away from the smoke and pray for the people who are in the fire's paths. And people can find me on Twitter at SFDoug or on Facebook, facebook.com. The uh, uh, tag for me is Doug Levy News. Mick, over in the Cathedral City, that is Norwich, one of the most beautiful cities within the UK. Um, tell us how people can catch up with you on Twitter and also what you've been up to since we last heard from you, sir. Um, yes, go to my Twitter at Broken Bottle Boy. Then go to my pinned tweet, which is the pre-orders for my novel, The Pleasure of Sinking. Click on that link, read <laughs> the extract. If you like it, back the book. That is what you should do, my friends, because I am very poor and I would like my book to come out. You do know I bought your book, don't you? Uh, yes, and I thank you for it. Oh, good, 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 good. And of course, folks, you can catch up with me on... I'll tell you what, though. Let me just wind this back a minute. Uh, You've been on fire on Twitter recently, uh, Mr. Wright. Uh, You are incredibly good and you're so prolific that I wonder if you ever sleep. So do you sleep, Mick? Yeah, I guess I just like tweet quite a lot in like little bursts, but a lot of time I'm not there. People always say that. It's funny. Um, it's probably just because the main place I do my thinking out loud. 
Well, uh, you, you've been a joy to uh, uh, to read, ah. you know, recently. You really have, mate. Well, so, thank uh, you, man. Cheers. Thumbs up to you, sir. Um, I am the complete, not a contrast uh, to Mick. Um, I can't write a sentence to save my life. And I don't think about weighty things on Twitter because my brain is addled all the time. Uh, but if you want to see me talk about my parents and how I love them and my kids, uh, you can follow me on Twitter where I'm at Royfield, which is R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Um, that has been us. We are at Mid-Atlantic Show. Uh, on Twitter, though, uh, I, I post there almost, well, not almost, more infrequently than I do to my own personal uh, Twitter feed. Uh, what you can do for us, though, folks, because we don't ask for money here, is a couple of things. Number one, go on to Apple Podcasts or a podcatcher of your choice and write us a review because uh, we do this thing uh, not only because we love it, but, but also because we are trying to send a message for uh, to, to people who maybe don't, people who are without a voice uh, and people who are economically marginalised. That's what we're all about. So go and write us a review. So to put a little bit of wind in our sails so we can continue to fight the good and the righteous fight. And the other thing you can do, is actually just go and tell a friend to listen to the show so we get more downloads. So that has been us, uh, Mid-Atlantic. We are the good people fighting the good fight. See you all again in approximately 14 days. Toodaloo. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.